This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little bit later, we're going to dive into the head-scratching world of cryptocurrencies. But first, this week a few scientists were roused from their sleep with an early morning phone call. That annual science ritual, the notification in the middle of the night that you've won a Nobel Prize. Here to tell us tell us some more about the winners and other selected short subjects in science, Sophie Bushwick, senior editor at Popular Science. Welcome back, Sophie. Glad to be here. Nice, nice to have you. Let's talk about it. So, so who won this year? For what? What impressed you? Your reactions. Well, so my favorite winner was for physics because this was the uh, LIGO winning for gravitational waves. I mean, and even though three, only three researchers were honored for this particular one, the actual number of contributors was over a thousand wow, people. That's right. Essentially, um, LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, was able to observe and prove the existence of these ripples in the fabric of space-time, which Einstein predicted more than 100 years ago. And the instrument they built to do it, LIGO, mm -hmm. which has this giant, two, two different locations with large interferometers, it's the most precise, one of the most precise machines that humans have ever made. In fact, uh, we spoke with Kip Thorne, who was one of the winners of the prize when the gravitational waves discovery first came out. It really goes back a ways. The earliest work by Ray Weiss and me and Ronald Dreaver, all completely independent on this, the foundation for it, we were all working on it independently, different aspects of it, already in the late 1960s. And so it goes back a, a half a century, basically. And the foundations for that, that we were building on, and the inspiration was work of Joseph Weber that go end all the way back to 1960. So that's what about 55 years ago. Yeah, so if you build it, they will come. All, all <laughs> 1,100 scientists. It'll take them maybe half a century, but yeah, they'll make it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move on to a story about how invasive species could be using plastic junk to, to tailgate across the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, to sail across the ocean. So, I mean, back in 2012, um, people in, I think, Oregon found this giant dock that, that had floated ashore carrying a bunch of Asian species. It had They had traveled all the way across the ocean. And one of the main ways that these species are able to travel, why it's a problem now when it didn't used to be, is because of plastic. Mm. So we've got a lot more plastic, and plastic doesn't biodegrade, and it's very sturdy, and it'll float. So these these animals can tag a, can, can hitch a ride on plastic where, while they couldn't have done a similar thing on, say, wood. So species can go where they're not supposed to. They're invasive now, right? Right. So if a species that's perfectly fine in Japan but doesn't have any natural predators in California winds up in the United States, that can be a big problem because they mm. can overwhelm native populations. Mm, yeah. Um, and I know you have something on our favorite topic, the, the microbiome, but this time in babies. Tell us about that. That's right. So researchers were looking at how different factors that occur in a baby's first year of life might affect its microbiome because the idea is that right now we're, we're, we're learning more and more about how changes in the microbiome can affect your overall health. And what they're hoping to do is sort of predict how the microbiome changes and then eventually we'll figure out what those changes mean 
for, you know, your health as an adult. So what they were looking at in babies was the the method of birth. So whether they were born through C-section or vaginally, they were looking at what they ate, whether they had formula or whether they were breastfed. And then finally, whether they had a dose of antibiotics in the first year of life. They were looking at these, these babies about 166 subjects between the age of three months and one year. Mm-hmm. And they found they find anything interesting? They were looking at sort of these factors in combination, and they found that, you know, a combination of factors can often have a different effect than just one of those factors individually. But there are other cases, so sort of like with the antibiotics, I think they found that that changes that occurred, um, breastfeeding was a more potent um, indicator of whether things would change than, say, antibiotic use. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that was just for those two factors in combination. I think the, the one big takeaway that I had from this study is that microbiomes are very complicated <laughs> and that it's going to take us a while to really like be able to treat, the, treat a, a, mm-hmm. an illness, perhaps, by treating the microbiome. You know, I remember when they were talking about babies and breastfeeding, and they, oh, you know, we know that there are certain beneficial effects of breastfeeding versus formula feeding. Right. And there were speculating was speculation years ago maybe it's not the formula itself but the fact that the baby's lips are on the mom's skin right so they're ingesting all the bacteria from the mother yeah that's definitely a factor because i mean every every surface around us in micro stage think about it but everything around us and inside us is covered in bacteria so you're constantly being exposed to it no matter how clean you might want to be. And that's actually a good thing. It's yeah. good to be exposed to this bacteria. And we know when you leave, you're leaving a little bit of yourself. <laughs> when, <laughs> Sophie, when you leave us today, right in that chair. <laughs> right, let's move on to our last topic, which is really uh, quite interesting. Bed bugs can smell your dirty laundry. And they like it, too. <laughs> like it. Yeah, so researchers, they, they wanted to figure out how are bed bugs managing to hitch a ride with travelers? Because, you know, if you go on vacation to an area and that's infested with bed bugs, it's very often possible to bring them back home with you in your luggage. So the researchers wanted to know, like, how are the bed bugs figuring out how to hitch a ride this way? And what they they theorized it was through dirty laundry. So they had volunteers wear clean clothes for about three hours, only three hours, and then they put those clothes in bags, and then they also had bags of clean clothes. They put them in a room and released bed bugs, and they were twice as likely to find bed bugs in the dirty laundry than in the clean laundry. That's some definition of dirty, wearing something for just three hours. Right, right. It takes very little time, apparently, for you to sort of impress your your scent of of humanness on the clothes. Or the microbiome. Or possibly the microbiome. (laughs) but, But, okay, so what are they? What, what's the aim of this? Is it to make a, a bug repellent or, or what? It's to make it easier for to give us some pro tips on how to prevent the spread of bed bugs because bed bugs have sort of developed resistances to a lot of the uh, poisons we use to kill them. So the idea is let's let's find other ways of stopping their spread. So one thing you might consider doing is before you leave after on your vacation, when you're on your vacation and it's right. your last day before you go back home, consider washing your clothes. Another, because when you put clothes in the wash, um, the heat from the dryer at, will kill bed bugs and bed bug eggs. So this is a good way of making sure that you're not bringing any back with you, and also that you're making your clothes less uh, nice smelling for the bed wow. bugs, less attractive to well, them. I'm going on vacation next week, so I will take that advice before uh, for a hit for home. Thank you, Sophie. You're welcome, Sophie Bushwick, senior editor at Popular Science. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA News, St. Louis Public Radio, Iowa Public Radio News. This is a segment where we highlight science stories from communities around the nation. And today's story comes to us from the public radio station WWNO in Louisiana. 
where a USDA program might pay whole neighborhoods of people to move out of their flood-prone houses and settle down in safer ground. Molly Peterson reported that story for Louisiana Public Radio Partnership, and she's here with us now. Welcome back to Science Friday, Molly. Thank you. So set the scene for us. Where are these neighborhoods in Louisiana? Well, last year, in early August um, of 2016, there was a massive flood in Louisiana. It covered many parishes. 13 people died, and there was about $2.4 billion in flood insurance claims. These neighborhoods are near Baton Rouge. Um, One of them is northwest of Baton Rouge. That's in Point Coupe Parish. I'm sorry, Point Coupe Parish. And the other one is in the town of Gonzales, which is in Ascension Parish on a street called Silverleaf. Mm -hmm. And some of these residents have witnessed some pretty devastating floods. I know you interviewed one resident, Ethel Stewart, about a big flood there in 2016. We have a clip of that. Oh, it came. It was rushing by 4 o'clock. Mm-hmm. They blowed the horn for us all to get out. And they were saying, get out, we got out. Those sandbags don't even do no justice. The water comes right straight through it. So when you got here, did it flood like this? No. It's gotten worse? Yes. So she's telling you things are getting worse over time. Yeah, I went door-to-door in that neighborhood in the depth of summer, um, just knocking on doors. A lot of people are still coming back. They might have cell phones that are on or not on, but they're they're still figuring out how to put their houses back together. These are um, largely poor, um, elderly black folk who've been here 40 years or so. They call their own neighborhood Flood City. Mm. You you asked some of the residents in the Pecan uh, Acres about how they feel about having their whole neighborhood relocate, and Ethel Stewart again said. Let us all, you know, come together so we can go as one and move another place instead of flooding out every year because we're getting older. We'll be better off. So what? I'm sorry, Ethel. why, Why the USDA? Why not FEMA money or something like that? Well, the USDA has something called the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and within that, the Emergency Watershed Protection Grant. This grant is widely used all over the country. It's just usually used to take land that's used for um, farmland and turn it back into wetlands. It pays people the value of the property before the flood incident And to return the land to a wetland, you have to rip out everything human that people Mm. put there. So houses, foundations, um, pipes, you know, sewers, electrical, everything. Did you you find that uh, everyone felt like Ethel Stewart about getting out or was there pushback on this? There was pushback. I mean, people in Pecan Acres tend to be in the same position, so I think that's a good reason why. And they've all continued to live in their own houses. So I think those are reasons why they Hmm. want to stay together. In Silverleaf, in Gonzales, where some people are renting, some people are newer to the neighborhood than others, it's a little more complicated. They haven't decided. President Trump announced that he wants to put an end to federal flood insurance on vulnerable coastlines like Florida and Louisiana, places like that. Climate activists are actually cheering him on on this. Yeah, though it's important to note that um, the idea actually came from Craig Fugate, the former head of FEMA under Obama, who raised this idea immediately after Hurricane Harvey um, and after President Trump rescinded an executive order from 2015 that required federal agencies to develop new flood standards. So, yeah, he uh, climate activists are cheering this on, but this is an idea that people who no. don't like talking about climate change in this area also support.
Oh, it may be a way that the president doesn't know he's endorsing the idea of climate change when he says he doesn't, when he thinks it's a hoax. Yeah, I mean, I think these disaster um, responders also say that this isn't a natural disaster, that this is just a disaster, that we've allowed people to build in places and rebuild and remain in places that are dangerous. Louisiana has a lot of those. Molly Peterson covers climate and environment issues, and she's reported this story for the Louisiana Public Radio Partnership. And we're hoping that everybody in the Gulf Coast comes through Hurricane Nate, scheduled to touch down uh, this weekend, unscathed. Thank you, Molly. You're welcome. After the break, the ABCs of altcoins, bitcoins, cryptocurrency. It makes your hair hurt. We're going to try to make it a little uh, less troublesome for you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. You've probably heard of Bitcoin. It's the virtual currency that's supposed to be more secure and decentralize and disrupt, disrupt how banking is done. Bitcoin has been around for eight years, but so far seems like it's only in the hands of uh, programmers and hackers and not the deli owner down the street. But cryptocurrency is making its way into wider circles. For example, if you go on Yelp, you can search for restaurants that take Bitcoin. There are even places in Asia that have become virtual mines working around the clock trying to dig up the coins. And some investors are taking it very seriously. This summer, the value of one Bitcoin jumped up to nearly $5,000. But what is a Bitcoin? Where does it get its value from? How does it work technologically, economically? And you've probably heard about the other B word, blockchain. What's that have to do with Bitcoin? My next guest is here for a Bitcoin breakdown and to tell us how the cryptocurrency might be used in the future. Garrick Heilman is a senior research associate at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance at the University of Cambridge in England. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. I want want to tell our listeners that if they have a question about how Bitcoin or blockchains work, give us a call, our number 844-724-8255. Of course, we always uh, like to hear from you on Twitter, at SciFry. Can you give us a brief history of why Bitcoin was invented? What were the programmers who created it trying to do? So, yeah, the Bitcoin came out of the cypherpunk movement, which uh, actually uh, goes back quite a ways. Uh, You know, in the 80s and 90s, many technologists were concerned about privacy, particularly communication privacy. And so tools like PGP, pretty good privacy, were developed to ensure that emails were confidential, um, that, you know, governments or businesses or spouses couldn't read uh, communication between one party and another. But a group within that community was also interested in financial privacy, and that's really um, what led to the creation of Bitcoin, is this desire to also have private financial transactions uh, where we're not necessarily revealing everything about the transaction or who we're transacting with or even how much we're transacting. Mm-hmm. So so it is a currency because people have decided it has a value, right? But it, but there's no silver or gold backing it like a, coin, a real coin. That's absolutely right. It's it's in in some ways similar to to the fiat currency that many people in the Bitcoin community um, criticize or 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 don't uh, don't uh, think will hold value much over time. Uh, what what gives Bitcoin value is its scarcity, the fact that there is going to be uh, a limited number of these, 21 million, and also its utility, its usefulness, what you can do with the Bitcoin itself. Mm-hmm. And what can you do with it? I mean, why is it why is it you know making headlines? Right. Well, there's a number of uh, limitations that our, our current money and currency system have. 
uh, or, or issues. Uh, one is uh, it can be quite expensive to, to transfer money uh, across borders. So for example, if you want to send uh, funds to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the average cost for a transaction like that will be at least 12%, sometimes 20% or more. Um, you can send uh, value through the Bitcoin network for much, much less than that. Um, microtransactions are another possibility. Bit Bitcoins have eight decimal places, so you can t send tiny fractions of value um, that you cannot easily do with, with, say, the dollar, which only has two decimal places. Um, you can also use the, the Bitcoin blockchain as a as a database, so it can be used for actually storing information, uh, and we can talk more about that in the you know later in the more general uses of blockchain. But it has a lot of really interesting novel applications. Uh, so you this way, if I as you say, if I want to transfer funds, I don't have to pay a middle middleman like my credit card or my bank or anything like that, and I avoid those fees. That seems to be something desirable. Yes and no. There, there can be fees associated with using Bitcoin. Uh, in the beginning, it was effectively free to use, uh, and it was advertised as such. But actually, as Bitcoin has become more popular over time, it's become a lot more crowded, and uh, the cost of actually using Bitcoin has gone up for users. In fact, uh, it's been as high as $5 a transaction, which if you're trying to send a micropayment, uh, doesn't make a lot of economic sense. So, that's been a lot of what the debate in the last few years has been about, is how to scale the network to drive down transaction fees uh, to levels that are more reasonable. Now, if I make a transaction with my credit card and it goes badly, I can always call my credit card company up and say, hey, would you reverse that? That's not something that I wanted. They gave me the wrong thing. Can you do that with Bitcoin? You cannot do that. That's that's a, a very important point to to make. So Bitcoin is is a lot like electronic cash. Uh, once you spend it, uh, it's effectively uh, out of your hands. And just like if you hand cash over to a business, not so easy always to get that back, uh, nearly impossible to have a Bitcoin transaction reversed uh, back to you. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the federal government controls the amount of U.S. dollars that are out there. It can print more money if it needs to based on how the economy is doing. So, so where do more Bitcoins come from? And how is it determined how many coins are out there? Right. Well, actually, just on that point, so a lot of this is actually a common misconception. Most of the money uh, in existence is not, uh, you know, central bank uh, notes and, and coins. It's actually uh, bank money. Uh, commercial banks like Bank of America, when they make a loan, that's actually where most of our money comes from, is through the making of loans. Uh, now, of course, Bank of America and Chase and so on, um, you know, have to abide by interest rate policy and, and are affected by monetary policy and so on. So the, the central bank and the government do have a hand in how much money is circulating, but uh, it's not as driven by the government as I think a lot of people think. Bitcoin, uh, in contrast, uh, is basically uh, governed, the, the number of Bitcoins is governed by an algorithm, by, by basically a protocol, software protocol. And those rules uh, can be difficult to change, as we've seen with Bitcoin in the last two years. But it's not impossible to change them either. If, if someday down the road a group uh, came together and said, okay, we want to increase the total supply of Bitcoin from 21 million to, say, 42 million, if we want to double it, mm -hmm. that's certainly possible. Mm -hmm. In fact, although there isn't a machine stamping out more Bitcoins or some company uh, pulling more Bitcoins out of the ground like gold, uh, they still need to come from somewhere. And they're called virtual Bitcoin mines, giant banks of computers burning a lot of electricity, turning away at the code to make more of these coins. And, and you might be surprised where a big number of these mines are popping up. I want to bring on another guest who has visited one of these mines. Morgan Peck 
is a journalist for the IEEE Spectrum, and the latest issue of that magazine is all about Bitcoin. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, we're talking, uh, you visited one where in Mongolia? Yeah, it was Inner Mongolia, um, about a one-hour uh, plane ride from Beijing, um, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and why, why, so why would that be in the middle of nowhere? Why is that a good spot, Ben? Well, there's actually only one reason they're there, which is that it's uh, close to very cheap electricity. So um, the operators of this particular mine, I, th I believe they pay uh, four cents per kilowatt hour, um, which is extremely low. Um, and why is that important for making a Bitcoin? Because basically all of these, all these machines are doing is taking electricity and turning it into money. And, and, <laughs> so, and when you say they're machines, are these like supercomputers that eat up a lot of electricity? Um, so they're computers that are um, based on an ASIC chip, which uh, is, a, is a chip that is specifically um, made to do one type of calculation. Mm -hmm. And in this example, it's the calculation that runs the Bitcoin network, which is, called, which is a hash function. So there are not a lot of people in hard hats sitting around mining anything. Tell us what you actually saw, how it works. <laughs> Sure. It's uh, I. It's a. It was a nine warehouses, um, and uh, inside of each each of one of them, there's just uh, racks and racks and racks of of computers that are gobbling down energy, twenty four seven. Um, and uh, the only other things really in the facility are are, are um, fans to keep it to keep it cold because that's your other uh, problem is that is that these machines are working so hard um, they're filling the places up with heat and um, mm. you're already actually in a very hot environment when I was there it was 102 degrees mm. I think um, and no air that's not yeah and that's pretty just normal I think fans. just fans uh, it, well they're fans made out of twisted metal uh, and then they have water dripping down them so it's an evaporator of cooling technique um, and then it throws the then right. they have some huge industrial fans that pump it out of the uh, of the warehouse but um, yeah uh -huh. it's just a bunch of <laughs> just a bunch of machines <laughs> well well I understand that, that China is seeing a surge in the use of Bitcoin what is what is being used there what are they doing with that why why China I think it's been um, a big locus for speculation actually um, is is everything that I've heard um, and actually the big news coming out of China is that um, the there's been a ban placed on on the Bitcoin exchanges there so that's kind of tamped down on the activity in China in the last I, I think that happened mm. a month ago about a month ago when you say speculation that means people are, are like the stock market they're driving up and down the price of a Bitcoin yeah they're trying, they're, they're trying to make money just on the price right it's price. just trading and and Bitcoin's not the only the only currency so so it's not just trading back and forth no. between fiat and and Bitcoin, they're also trading between other other coins that are out there now. So it's a big, it's just mm -hmm. a big casino. <laughs> Garrick, how are other countries approaching Bitcoin? Is there government support in any place? Yeah, you know, it's it's mixed. Uh, we we early on we saw some countries like Ecuador and Bolivia actually, you know, outright ban make illegal Bitcoin. More recently, we've seen Japan just this year formally recognize so legalize Bitcoin, which has certainly driven uh, much greater. Uh, adoption uh, across not just for exchange trading, but we're seeing also a lot of uh, merchants uh, in Japan starting to allow Bitcoins as a means of payment with the formal recognition from the government. Hmm. I, I have a tweet here coming in from uh, Karen who says, uh, Bitcoin miners in Venezuela are persecuted horribly. Hmm. You know about that? No? 
Uh, well, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Morgan, do you have do you have a, I, I only know what I read in the press, but Morgan, do you, you have any idea, Morgan? I I've only heard yeah I've I've heard that that's true, but I I don't have any more information on that. Sorry. I mean, I can speak to what might be driving that, which is that, you know, Venezuela's economy is in tatters right now. Inflation is uh, running wildly out of control, and people are desperately looking for alternatives to kind of store value and, and protect themselves financially. And so we, we hear reports, and there's some evidence of, of you know, growing interest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in Venezuela, which makes sense. I mean, when I looked at what factors could drive adoption of something like a digital alternative currency, it's countries yeah. that have, you know, mm-hmm. financial crises, high inflation, financial repression. Venezuela ticks all those boxes. Let me go to the phones to Frederick, Maryland. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. I go ahead. Can you hear me? I hear your phone. No. no? Well, I guess he's he's gone. Um, uh, let Let's see. Let's see. Let's go to uh, Let's go to San Francisco to. Well, let's let's go to Fernando in San Francisco, California. Hi, Fernando. Hi. Um, I recently changed a very small amount of U.S. dollars to Bitcoin, and it has since quintupled in price. So I was wondering, what are the big factors that are likely to make uh, Litecoin, for example, explode in value in the future? Because a lot of people are interested in speculating on these. Is it a matter of widespread adoption by the public? or uh, major financial institutions accepting the currency and using it. And also for your second guest, or for either of your guests, um, I wonder if they could comment on the effects of Bitcoin in uh, the Venezuelan underground economy, which I, I remember reading something about. Thank you. Okay. Uh, okay, so what is driving it? Uh, uh, Garrick, what, why is it fluctuating like that? Right. Well, I think a number of things drive you know the price. I mean, speculation, of course, but also there's... Um, you know, further adoption uh, by exchanges and wallets. So the more wallets and more places you can use a currency, and we've seen Litecoin and some of the other, uh, you know, alternatives to Bitcoin uh, increase uh, in their levels of adoption. The more places you can use it, the more utility it has, and and so the value potentially could respond to that. Um, At the same time, as I mentioned, you know, Bitcoin innovation has really stagnated over the last couple of years as there's been this gridlock um, over how to scale the protocol. And so that's really, I think, created Mm. space for alternatives like Litecoin and others to to increase in value. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking uh, about Bitcoin with Morgan Peck and uh, Garrick uh, Hellman. Um, so how what's to stop other people from coming up with their own kind of currency? You know, a different a, a competitor to Bitcoin. Morgan, you're smiling. Uh, yeah, because uh, absolutely nothing. And it's <laughs> happened many times. Yeah. Um, there are thousands out there, actually. Um, and many of them are being traded against each other. Um, it, it, what Bitcoin is 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 a, is a protocol that everyone is running, and, and that's what defines the currency is that, that everyone who wants to use it is, is using the same protocol. So uh, all you have to do to make a new one is, is, um, is start your own you know, software. So, so when I buy either Bitcoin or a Litecoin or what other, I'm, I'm speculating then that this is going to still be around tomorrow, and then that's not going to fall to some other cryptocurrency. That sure, out. yeah. But, uh, I mean, Bitcoin does have quite an advantage of being the first one out there, and, and there's, I would say that, yeah, there is a, an, it would be very hard to, to surmount that, that network effect at this point. Mm-hmm. You think so, Garrick? 
Yeah, it's it's definitely has a huge advantage in terms of adoption, brand recognition, uh, infrastructure, and so on. Absolutely, it's not. I wouldn't say it's impossible for Bitcoin to be um, toppled, but but it's it's definitely has a, a major edge on on the others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things to point out is that a lot of. I mean, I said there were thousands of coins out there. Most of those are are purely just clones of Bitcoin itself, or clones of other ones. But there are a few yeah. coins that actually add functionality. Uh, and that that was the reason they were made, not not just as... I have a tweet from Milo, which I think reflects a lot of what people are saying. I just don't get why Bitcoin is so valuable. It's nothing. It's <laughs> nothing is backing it. It's just nothing like a piece of data. You're, you're laughing, Garrett. Right. Well, this, this comes up a lot, and, and it, it is mind-boggling. I mean, for the first year plus that Bitcoin existed, it was worth nothing. Uh, and then, you know, uh, someone decided to say, hey, uh, if someone buys me a pizza, I'll, I'll send you 10,000 Bitcoins, uh, a gentleman in Florida back in, uh, I believe, 2010. And, and all of a sudden, Bitcoin uh, could be used to buy uh, pizza. And then people said, well, what about alpaca socks? And maybe we should start trading this for dollars. And and what, what's happened over time is people have found more and more uses for it. Now, some of these are less legitimate uses than others. Of course, famously, Bitcoin is widely used you know, in, the, in the online dark web and uh, you know, more recently for, for ransomware, which is you know, definitely a concern. But at the same time, you know, U.S. dollars and other national currencies are used for crime, too. So yeah. um, you know, there, are, there are legitimate uses for Bitcoin as well. It's, it can be a fast, cheap way to send money across borders, like I mentioned, and, okay. and that's a good thing. Uh, I only have about a minute to the break, but I wanted to ask this question. Can I call up my broker and say, sell my stock and put it in Bitcoin or take whatever I have in Bitcoin in, in, in my IRA or whatever it is? Is that is it that uh, easy yet? No, it's it's not that easy. There's been some high-profile efforts to um, have exchange-traded funds uh, operating uh, on, you know, on U.S. exchanges, and those have uh, actually been rejected so far by the Securities and Exchange Commission for various reasons. All right. All right. We're gonna, well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have plenty more time to talk about it. A lot of people want to talk about Bitcoin. We're also going to talk about blockchain, the math and the algorithms behind Bitcoin and other things that people are using blockchain for. So stay with us, 844-724-8255. Also tweet us at SciFry, S-C-I-F-R-I. Lots of interest in this subject. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday. We're talking this hour about Bitcoin, how it works, what it might be used for in the future. Uh, with my guests, Morgan Peck, journalist for the IEEE Spectrum, Garrick Heilman of the University of Cambridge in England. Our number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Now, when we talk about Bitcoin, there's another B word you hear a lot about, and that is blockchain. Blockchain is the new algorithm. It's a technology that people always name drop. But no, really understands in our audience what it does. Uh, Garrett, can you give us a simple explanation of what blockchain is and how it works? Yes. Well, blockchain was invented alongside Bitcoin by Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, today, blockchain has come to mean uh, lots of things. But simply put, it you can think of it as the database that keeps track of the Bitcoins and who owns what. And people realize, wait a minute, I can take that database technology and I can use it to do other things that have nothing to do with money or Bitcoin. For example, I could you know, use it for electoral voting to give people privacy, but also give them the ability to audit to make sure their vote was counted um, and so on. So it's, it's come to be um, uh, viewed as a really innovative technology in itself, separate from Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And Morgan? Yeah, I would say the blockchain 
does two things. It, it's a place that, that stores uh, previous transactions on the Bitcoin network, but it's also the place that, that does those transactions, uh, which is which is an actual uh, execution of of that transaction, uh, which has to follow the rules that Bitcoin has set up. Um, and so people have looked at the blockchain and said, uh, can we can we generalize the functionality of storage and can we generalize the functionality of of what of how you execute a transaction and if you make both of those more complex you can you can build some really interesting things mm-hmm. um, you can have transactions that are not only uh, where it's not just a simple simply me saying I want to give money to to Ira but you can add different um, different rules to that transaction, such as I want to give money to, to IRA only when, let's say, uh, on a certain date in the right. future or when the temperature outside is uh, 70 degrees Fahrenheit exactly. You can add to that complexity. So it is a chain of commands and things. Mm-hmm. It's a block and it's hooked to the chain of other commands mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, Garrick, you said something very interesting about voting. Uh, and you you said that this would be a safe way and a way you could check if your vote counted or not. How safe is it? Is it really much safer? That's a good question. And there are there are definite concerns here. I mean, any any blockchain system is potentially vulnerable. It's it's a you know it's something that's not a hundred percent secure. There are known ways to to attack uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and, and any blockchain, but. Um, it does have some some advantages. It's uh, resiliency, which we've talked about, um, the cryptography that they employ, and so on. So it could be a useful way for for putting out public information um, in a transparent mm-hmm. fashion that's still secure. Mm-hmm. Morgan, there's a, there's a company called Ethereum that is a global computer network that has created its own virtual currency. And how does it approach the idea differently than from let's say from Bitcoin? So like I was saying, you can generalize. Uh, the two functions of a blockchain, which is to store data and to uh, execute transactions. Um, They want to generalize that beyond what anybody has previously imagined and say, instead of just doing a transaction, which is a little bit of code that that miners on the network are are running, we're going to let them run any code they want, not just code that says give the put take this money and put it over there. We're going to let them run whatever code they want. Mm-hmm. It could even be, you know, a, a complex software program. It could be wow. a game. It could be anything. Um, and so, what you have once you give miners that functionality, and we haven't talked about miners, but they're just the ones that are that are keeping, um, they're that are building onto the the blockchain. Um, once you give them that functionality, you can basically um, take what was a distributed currency and turn it into a distributed computer, is what right. they're calling it. <laughs> right. That and makes- so you can have you can have computer programs executed in a distributed fashion on this network. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I, I have a tweet from uh, Jim who says. It is as easy as downloading apps to your phone to get cryptocurrencies. Is it that easy? Is there an app you can download? Sure. It's called a wallet, and uh, basically it's a client that is, that's communicating with the blockchain. That's really all you need is some way to interface with the blockchain, which is the repository of, of all of the transactions that have ha- happened in the mm-hmm. past. Garrick, does any of this uh, make you fearful at all? Uh, <laughs> well... Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I mean, but I, I tend to be a bit of an optimist when it comes to technology. There's definite, you know, risk factors involved with all of this, and, and I think a lot of hype has surrounded the space. And so, 
you know, these, these technologies are vulnerable. At the same time, I mean, Bitcoin is nothing short of a, an engineering mar marvel. It's been running for almost nine years without, you know, really a nanosecond of downtime, the most powerful computing network in history. And how many other IT systems that you know of are that resilient? I mean, it's, it's quite an impressive accomplishment. Mm. Now, you conducted a study to see who was investing and using Bitcoin, and, and what did you find? So, yeah, we, we have uh, some data on this, and, and really what we've learned is that Bitcoin is, is, is a currency. It is being used to buy things, but actually uh, it's, it's more today an asset. So, you know, cryptocurrency is a little bit misleading. I, I think crypto asset might be a more appropriate term uh, for how it's being used today. It's an alternative store value. People in Venezuela... Uh, are looking to use it for for you know the reasons we discussed. People in South Korea, which has been one of the hot markets, may be looking to use it as a hedge against geopolitical risk. And so, uh, you know, that seems to be the primary uh, thing people are are using Bitcoin for today. Mm -hmm. There's there's something uh, called small contracts, Morgan. What, how do these work? Oh, smart contracts. Smart contracts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's actually that's what I was describing before, which is uh, it, ways in which you can make. Uh, transactions more complex um, mm -hmm. and follow more complex rules. Um, people like to use the term programmable money. You can program a transaction to do very oh, unique things. Saying. So if it's like yeah. you can make it run an algorithm. Exactly. For, if it if it costs too much, do that. If it is too less, do this. If mm -hmm. you want to buy that, that's not available. Buy this. That sort of thing. You can have whatever rule sets you want determining huh. how a transaction goes through, when it goes through, who it goes through to. Yeah. That's quite interesting. We've run out of time. I'd like to thank my guests. We'll have to do this again. Um, Morgan Peck, journalist for IEEE Spectrum. Garrick Holloman is a senior research associate at the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, University of Cambridge in England. Thanks, uh, Garrick, for staying up late with us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ira. Here's a question for you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say wildlife in New York City? Raccoons, squirrels, rats on the subway tracks? Now, what if I told you that one of the largest mammals on Earth lives very close to the Statue of Liberty? I'm talking about the magnificent whale, of course. The whales disappeared from New York's waters about a century ago due to pollution and overfishing, but now they are making a comeback. But what is bringing them back, and how can we protect these new residents? Joining us now to discuss this and our newest macroscope video about the whales of New York is our video producer, Luke Graskin. Welcome back, Luke. Hi, Ira. You went out and saw these whales. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We went out to the New York Bite, which is a stretch of water that goes from Montauk to Montauk, Long Island, to Cape May, New Jersey, which is the far end of New Jersey. Uh, we saw about four whales, two humpback whales, a fin whale and a minke whale, and it was just spectacular. And it wasn't just you out there, right? There, there were scientists who were studying these whales. Uh, why? What, what exactly are they looking for? Sure. So uh, I and a couple of Science Friday radio producers went out with a um, conservation scientist named Howard Rosenbaum. He works for the Wildlife Conservation Society. And um, he and a team of uh, conservation scientists are um, they're getting IDs on whales. They're getting photo IDs. They're getting uh, geotagging where the sightings are actually occurring. Um, and they're also getting biopsies of these whales. So they're taking a crossbow with a little empty dart at the tip, and they fire it into the whale, and they get a little chunk of flesh, and they, they use that to 
to determine the actual identity and the mm. DNA of that animal. Um, and it, if that sounds really exciting, it really, really was. And in fact, our, our radio producers put together a little audio postcard of, of what this whole experience was like. So we're headed out into Great South Bay, and then we're going to go look for whales and start our whale surveys. Is this something? Can you guys see it? Yeah, I see. Right over here, I just saw it. That's Menhaden. That's, our, that's what they're, the whales were feeding on, and locally known as Bunker. Looks like there's something bigger. Yeah, no, no, there's definitely something bigger. So keep an eye out for a blow, a body part, you know, some water that breaks, something. If you see something, say something. I just saw it belly up. Yep. Coming up right in front of you, right? There's 12. Coming right over to the spray. Go, Jim. Go, go, go. Go, 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 Jim. Go, go, go. Do we know how big this one is? No, we haven't gotten close enough, but we can certainly identify the species, you know, the characteristic blow, um, where the position of the dorsal fin was. Blow! See him? See the white? I'm not shooting too close. Safety's off. Uh, no reaction. That's a blubber. Um, I'm not going to touch it, but you can see the epidermis. That's a little black right there. And that's the start of the blubber layer. And, and at the bottom of the dart, there'll be a little bit of skin. That's what we'll use. Pretty amazing close approach by that animal. Came to check us out right alongside the boat. That has not happened yet this season. So it's a banner day. Three species of large whales in one day, dolphins and a shark. You guys are having quite the day. <laughs> Sounds like a real adventure on water. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, are the researchers tracking these whales? Is that what this is about? Um, they're not tracking these specific whales, but there is a buoy that's set up about, um, it, it's out in the middle of, uh, 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 between two shipping lanes, uh, right where they're looking to do some um, uh, renewable energy development. And they put this buoy out there, and anytime a whale makes a vocalization, uh, you can actually, uh, it, the, the buoy picks up on it and sends a signal back to a satellite, and then you, you can actually see what whales are in their area at any given time and what species they are. There was a mention of, the, of a fish called Manhattan. There and Manhattan, uh, you know yeah. Manhattan, and yes. it's like the whales are saying, "I'll take Manhattan because yes. that's what they'd like to eat there." Yeah, that's that's their their primary source of prey there, and you, all these other species are actually eating that too. Uh, you have the stripers, um, you have bluegills, uh, blue uh, fish, uh, you have albacore tuna, um, you have a whole ecosystem that's running off of these Manhattan, and when the whales go barging through them and lunging through them, it's so dramatic. And in mm. fact, when you heard that, like trickling sound yeah, yeah. that's the sound of the fish popping on the surface they're just <laughs> like football fields thousands of them millions millions of them, of them. millions of them and they're a, a wonderful spectacle in and of themselves i'm ira plato this is science friday from pri public radio international talking with uh, luke graskin about uh, their adventure with the whales around new york city it's hard to believe it so the fish have come back and that's why the whales have come back Exactly. Exactly. You don't get you don't get the whales without the fish, and that's really the result of you, you know decades of of environmental legislation. You have you know the Endangered Species Act, which allows the whales to recover from whaling back in the last century. You have the Clean Water Act, which makes it easier for the the spawning fish to um, you know at the heads of rivers to actually um, you know be uh, thrive. Right. And then um, 
you have, you know, proper fisheries management where, you know, they're not taking that many of these fish. These menhaden are actually bait fish. They're used for bait in by other fishermen or they're turned into cat food or, or fish oil, pa- uh, you know, right. pellets. And uh, in about 2012, 2013, there was a reduction in the actual take on these these fish. And the conservationists that I spoke to, they said, they said, you know, that probably had a big impact in terms of the resurgence of whales. And now you have these amazing spectacles, <laughs> and the choice becomes, you know, you can, you can. If what happens if the Manhattan goes away? Mm. So you have these tour boats of tourists going out to the way to watch the whales, but you, how far, how close can you get to them? Well, is there a law about that? Yeah, there is. You you can't just go out in a boat and go approaching whales. That's that's against the law. Um, the Marine Mammal Protection Act prevents that. Um, that said, if you're out there and you're a fisherman uh, looking for stripers and and um, albacore or something like that, and these these animals are eating the the menhaden, you, you're, if you go at the right time of year, you're gonna see some amazing spectacles of whales. They're they're back. Um, you can't really miss them. They're all over. Do you think any New Yorkers really know about this yet? I mean, oh no. No. No, <laughs> it's it's it, on on some level it's a little depressing because because you have, you know, you know, the five boroughs of people that that when they, again when they think about wildlife, right. you know, they're they're or It's a pigeon with a bagel or a exactly. pizza or something like And right. meanwhile, literally 10 miles offshore or or even less within sight of the shore, you have these, you know, National Geographic BBC style spectacles of animal behavior. Um, that, you know, you, you thought you could only see on TV, but if you go out on a whale watching boat and you don't have to go out to Montauk and you don't have to go out to Cape Cod, you can actually see these things. And it's absolutely incredible. What was your favorite moment? Do you have a favorite moment? Uh, I, I think it was when we first saw the minke whale. M- minke whale kind of, we we were just looking at these menhaden and then all of a sudden you just see this this dorsal fin just swoosh through the menhaden. And the menhaden actually create this like kind of, pressure wave, the shock wave of them trying to get out of the way. And it's the first time you see the whale and it's just absolutely thrilling. It was maybe, you know, 100 meters off the side of our boat and just absolutely stunning. I, I never thought I would actually get to see that sort of predatory feeding behavior from a whale, um, especially around New York City. Did you get the impression that they, the whale knew you were there? I don't think they care when they're that hungry. Did like, they signal or anything like it's, that? It's like having an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> they they don't care who else is in the restaurant. They're they're hungry. They're, so they're not slapping their flukes at you or anything like well, that? Well, they, they did slap their flukes after they got hit with the biopsy dart. But, I mean, the size of the whale, I mean, it's 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 kind of like getting, getting bit by a mosquito or getting your ear flicked. It doesn't actually harm them, and they definitely slap yeah. the surface of the water, and it's very dramatic. You can see that actually in the video. Well, I think my, maybe more people will learn about these amazing creatures. Maybe some New Yorkers will say, hey, let's go out and take a look after watching your video out there. Yeah, it's an opportunity for, for people in New York um, to really you know, take some pride in the wildlife around them. It's not, you know, mm. you don't associate that with New York no. City, but, I mean, I, th- I think this is something that people can really get behind. Yeah, you don't have to go anywhere very far. Luke Roskin is our video producer, and you can check out his whale video on our website at sciencefriday.com slash whales. Thank you, Luke. Thanks, Aaron. I'm, I'm jealous. One last thing before we go, for all you science trivia geeks on the West Coast, we're bringing Science Friday trivia to San Francisco for the Bay Area Science Festival. That's Monday, October 30th at Public Works in the Mission for a night of geeky trivia, drinks, prizes, and science-themed Halloween costume, too. Geeky Halloween. What could be better? Info at sciencefriday.com trivia. 
sciencefriday.com slash trivia. That's October 30th at the Public Works in the Mission. Charles Berquist is our director, our producer, Christopher Taliata. He's our senior producer. Other producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Heiler. Our radio intern is Shashmita Patak. And we had tech and engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Plato in New York.